So we really want to be, again, doing this dynamic evaluation. It tells us so much about their motor system and about prognosis and what kind of cueing they respond to. Um, whatever we're doing, we really want to be assessing for the characteristics of apraxia across speech tasks. So there's not one defining characteristic. We have, um, you know, the Mayo 10, and, and then I also include inconsistency with that um, using Sue Caspari's adaptation. So we're assessing for all those characteristics, and we're assessing for them across speech tasks. So it's not just are they present, it's are they present with frequency. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. This episode is a part of our Apraxia Connect series, and I think you're really going to want to hear this one. Today, I'm joined by Brianna Waldrup, a licensed speech-language pathologist and the owner of Apraxia Dallas, PLLC. Brianna's primary area of expertise is motor speech disorders, especially childhood apraxia of speech, or CAS, which she has specialized in for more than 11 years. Brianna graduated from the Apraxia Kids Training Institute, or the CAS, boot camp, and is recognized as having advanced training and expertise in CAS. Since 2017, Brianna has coordinated the North Texas Walk for Apraxia, benefiting Apraxia kids. She has presented continuing education courses across the country since 2016 and developed much of the child apraxia treatment website. Brianna believes strongly that every child has the right to communicate and strives to help each child with whom she works to find their voice. Brianna, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here to talk about CAS, which is my big passion, and also to help empower other SLPs to know more about this disorder and how to help children that have it. It's so important. So did that bio cover everything, or is there anything else you'd like to add before we talk about speech production for children with a childhood apraxia of speech? No, I, I think you covered everything there. Okay, perfect. So this is a big question that we have received. We put out a survey before we started planning for the event. And one of the biggest questions we got was, what are the signs of suspected CAS? Can you get into that a little bit? Sure. And this is something that I have thought about a lot because before I started specializing in CAS, I worked in early childhood intervention, which is the birth to three program here in Texas. And so um, when I started looking more into suspected CAS at that time, um, I really looked at Shelley Velleman's information in her Childhood Apraxia of Speech Resource Guide. And in that, we look at a child's communication. So there are some things that we look for, like this um, 
high level of communicative intent, but maybe not speech. So we see these young children who are trying to communicate a lot using lots of nonverbal communication. I've had children who started making up their own signs, um, but they're not able to really use speech. Um, sometimes we also see that, you know, we're trying our tried and true speech therapy techniques, language stimulation, and we're just not seeing the response that we expect. And we see this large discrepancy between like their receptive um, and their speech abilities. Um, and sometimes then we see some real shyness and kind of withdrawal um, and shutdown that tends to happen. Um, and we also look at, you know, family history, and, you know, developmental history, were there issues with feeding? That can be some indications of some nonverbal oropraxia, their motor milestones, um, were they a quiet baby? Um, and then in 2019, we had a great research study that came out. So um, Megan Overby and Sue Kaspari and their colleagues did a study where they took um, children who were diagnosed with CAS and asked the parents for videos of when the children were young. And so they went through and compared those and were able to come up with some really concrete um, items for us to look at instead of it just being lack of babbling quiet baby, it was really more specifics like lack of a constant sound by their first year of age, um, lack of five constants by their second birthday, um, a favoritism towards like stops and nasals instead of other consonants. Um, that's when we're all like, I'll have these young children who they're not doing like what and yeah, <laughs> which mm -hmm. are typically, you know, very early or even I work on the age cell with so many kids um, and these kids aren't developing. So we were able, so now we have some more specifics that if we're working with that age range, we can certainly be monitoring. Or when we're talking with parents, um, I don't ask those specific questions. I don't think most parents are going to remember, uh, but I ask things like, when did you become concerned about your child's communication? And usually then parents will say, oh, well, at their one-year checkup or at their first birthday, they were only saying this or they weren't saying anything. And then at their 18-month checkup, they were only saying this. And then we can kind of gather from that information, oh, yes, that was like only one consonant sound or things like that. Of course, we can ask for videos too. Um, if the family has those, but most often I just go through a nice um, family report. So um, definitely check out the study um, that Megan Overby and Sue Kaspari did um, looking at some of those specifics um, for what defines a quiet, a quiet baby. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll try to include that in the show notes as well, because I'm not sure. Do you know if it's open access or not? I am not sure if that one's open access. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll try to find some version of it that the listeners can access and see those results. But I think that those are very powerful and definitely more descriptive than the ones that are like pretty standard. So I appreciate you sharing those too. Mm -hmm. So I you know you do a lot of evaluations for childhood apraxia of speech. What should be included in an evaluation? So I think probably the most important item is a dynamic motor speech exam. So if you're not familiar, in a dynamic motor speech exam, that's where we elicit a target word and the child tries it. And if they're accurate, we elicit it again. And the reason we elicit it at least two times is we're looking for consistency. And if the child makes an error, then what we do next is really that dynamic part where we add in cueing. So that might be something like we just say the word again slower 
It might mean that we're doing it simultaneously instead of imitation. We can really use any cueing that we think might be helpful for that child. And we do that for a few tries and see, and we're watching and listening that entire time, how is the child trying to produce that targeted utterance? Um, and then usually we, after we see kind of for a few trials, how they improve, we then withdraw the cueing and then try it again, an imitation and see if they're able to retain any of the improvements they made. We have one published, like uh, more uh, stand, it's standardized, it's not norm reference, but standardized, and that's the dynamic evaluation of motor speech skills that was developed by Edie Strand and Rebecca McCauley. So that's available from Brooks Publishing. So that's one, and it goes through a variety of different phonotactic shapes from very simple CVs up to multisyllabic words. Um, but I often find that we have children who aren't talking very much who can't complete the entire DEMS. So I, my colleague and I have made like a modified one that we do to wheels on the bus. <laughs> and so we have a list of words that happen in wheels on the bus that a variety of different syllable shapes or phonotactic shapes, um, a variety of vowels and a variety of mostly early developing consonants. And so we can look at a book or do something like that and engage the child in that way with something that um, is usually kind of familiar and elicit those different words. I've also have children that the DIMS goes up to three syllable words. I've had older children or less severe children who they fly through that. And so they're producing everything accurately and consistently up to the three syllable level. In that case, we have to do some kind of informal dynamic motor speech exam where we're eliciting um, maybe sentences, maybe we're putting those multisyllabic words into phrases or sentences, um, kind of pushing their motor speech system a bit more to see if we see that breakdown. So we really want to be, again, doing this dynamic evaluation. It tells us so much about their motor system and about prognosis and what kind of cueing they respond to. Um, whatever we're doing, we really want to be assessing for the characteristics of apraxia across speech tasks. So there's not one defining characteristic. We have, um, you know, the Mayo 10 and and then I also include inconsistency with that um, using Sue Kaspari's adaptation. So we're assessing for all those characteristics and we're assessing for them across speech tasks. So it's not just are they present, it's are they present with frequency. Um, so that's definitely the most important thing. And then um, definitely, of course, do an oral mechanism exam, you know, get in there as much as you can. Again, with young children, I do that through play, um, maybe observe them, you know, doing some other things like eating. Of course, we're taking a case history. We want to do a speech and language sample, see what the child's able to do on their own. That's actually usually where I start. We're playing. I'm hearing what they can do on their own, getting some idea of where they are, um, what type of dynamic motor speech exam they'll be able to do. Um, and ideally, too, we're going to screen for nonverbal oral apraxia as well. So just try some of those non-speech movements. And through all that, we're gaining um, their phonetic and phonemic repertoires. Of course, if the child's able, we'll do articulation and phonology tests. But again, a lot of these children aren't able to talk very much. Um, so they're not always able to complete that kind of task. There is a great article called Appraising Apraxia that Edie Strand um, wrote, and it was published in the ASHA Leader. I believe it was in 2017. So um, since it's in the ASHA Leader, all ASHA members do have access to that that article. And um, in that article, Edie Strand goes through and talks through like kind of a case study almost of like how you would assess for apraxia. There's a couple of great charts in there for reference um, as to what you would use and what you're looking for. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that one. We'll try to include that in like the references as well. Cause I think that sounds like an amazing article for people to take a look at. And, uh, so just to summarize an oral mechanism exam, a dynamic motor speech exam, the DIMS, anything else I missed play based. (laughs) Yes. Uh, case history, a spontaneous, spontaneous speech and language sample, Perfect. Mm-hmm. And then those, yeah, phonetic and phonemic repertoires, whether that's you're just assessing everything they did or whether you're actually doing a formal test. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. And I loved your suggestion about the wheels on the bus. You should publish that. <laughs> I don't know if it's trademarked the wheels on the bus, but I love the idea of like getting those like tasks completed with like a song so it doesn't feel like they're just repeating like everything that you're saying or saying it with you could you give one line of what that would like sound like um so sure (laughs) okay so we might say okay so now we're going to um sing the wheels on the bus so let's try and say what we're singing about let's try to say bus okay and then the child tries and then we can go into it and then and then it's usually reinforcing too and of course you could also do it with a toy bus and we've done things like that um or sometimes i just do part of the dims so we don't get a full but especially with um some of my children that are just alt language processors and things like that like we really have to make the words contextual and meaningful for them to try them and if it isn't contextual and meaningful then they don't tend to try. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that can also be helpful for, for children, um, you know, that, that are processing language that way. Right. Man, I think we could do a whole separate episode on gestalt language processing and apraxia. I have a client who saw a specialist for childhood apraxia of speech, had gotten the diagnosis of suspected, or I don't know if that's like a true diagnosis, but it's suspected. It's a working diagnosis, working Mm -hmm. diagnosis. There you go. And uh, that particular person did not have knowledge of like gestalt language processing or did not like, you know, approach it that way. I saw the client for gestalt language processing, and I don't think there's any evidence of apraxia at this point. So it's just interesting. Like there's probably so much more like research and work that needs to be done in those areas. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And that's a constant topic of conversation on my team. um, Because we have so you know, we're learning more and more about in LA and everything like that. And then we're looking at our motor speech knowledge. And we're like, you know, trying to put that together for the kids that that it applies to. So yeah, yeah. So interesting. And then we had Dr. Eugenie Siegel talking about motor speech delay. So yes, that's super fascinating as well. And she'll talk about that in her course at Apraxia Connects. So, so awesome. Cool. I but, love Jinya. She's great. <laughs> yeah, she really is. So what trainings do you recommend for therapists who want to learn more? Sure. So um, some great trainings are available on the Apraxia Kids website. So Apraxia Kids has a whole library of webinars, some of which are free and others that um, do cost money. So you can like buy basically like a subscription. Um, And those are a variety of speakers, leading researchers in the field. Um, and it's quite the, you know, compilation um, of, of webinars and topics they have related to CAS. So definitely recommend the Apraxia Kids website. Another great one is available from Child Apraxia Treatment. So Child Apraxia Treatment has 
two uh, courses taught by Dr. Edie Strand that are about CAS and specifically uh, DTTC or dynamic temporal and tactile cueing. Um, and then they also offer in-person workshops that are also free. You have to apply for them and have taken the online courses, but those are phenomenal sources of information. Uh, while Edie was still at the Mayo Clinic, she did a whole series of videos there. Um, they aren't available for continuing education credit, but they're available through the Mayo Clinic's YouTube site. And those can also be really great to share with parents. But I find if you're new to CAS, they just have great information. Um, a couple of other resources that, again, aren't necessarily formal trainings, but definitely helpful to learn more. The rest uh, website, so rapid syllable transition training, which is one of our evidence-based approaches for treating CAS. Um, they have videos of um, rest therapy. They have, there's a tutorial of like, here's how to do rest. They have lots of resources there. So if that's a therapy that you think might be appropriate for one of your children with CAS, I definitely encourage you to check out that resource. And then another um, more recent one is speech motor chaining, which is one of our newest um, approaches for treating CAS with a growing evidence base that was developed by um, Dr. Jonathan Preston, and his team at Syracuse. And their website is also fantastic. Uh, you use their website when you're doing therapy, but they also have a tutorial. There's also videos and kind of um, you know explanations about how to do it. So I would definitely also check out those resources. Amazing. Those sound great. And you shared so many free ones. So that's super awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's what I always go for first. <laughs> right. Um, you know, real life. <laughs> well, and is... I think that like anybody who's wanting to learn more about childhood apraxia of speech and needs to, maybe they're in a situation where they have a client on their caseload and like, they're totally new to this, the more education, the better. So I really appreciate you sharing those. Absolutely. So what is residual CAS? I've actually not heard that term until you mentioned it in the application. So I'm very curious, like, what is this? So I, I don't know um, if there's a formal definition, but what I've seen in my clinical experience is that we have children who, um, you know, we do know how to treat. CAS. Um, we know, based on the principles of motor learning, that we can often improve the efficiency of their motor planning for speech systems. And kids will really make great progress and really increase their intelligibility. Um, but I see sometimes with children who are older, they, they have been through um, therapy, that we still have some of these issues that tend to pop up. So a lot of those are related to prosody and co-articulation. So sometimes we have children who they actually can produce all of the speech sounds um, and often are doing great in single words, but their connected speech is still not always very intelligible or as intelligible as we would expect. Um, and in those cases, again, often when we dig into why is that the case, we find these issues with prosody. We find these issues with maybe 
having difficulty varying their prosody, maybe a tendency to being monotone, um, using even an equal stress or inappropriate stress, segmentation. So, you know, having kind of these awkward pauses between words or maybe even within words, sometimes a slower rate, things like that. So again, it's like the motor system's improved a lot. They can produce all of these sounds, uh, but their speech still isn't quite typical or doesn't sound um, exactly um, as intelligible as we think. Sometimes people will ask those kids like, where are you from? Like they think they have an accent. Mm -hmm. And again, that a lot of times will relate to co-articulation. The other um, issue that I see is some morphosyntax errors that continue to persist. Um, and again, I often think that's related to co-articulation. So it'll be some things like using um, plural or possessive S. And a lot of times that involves some pretty complicated consonant-consonant combinations that we don't usually think of that ha is happening in English, but especially in connected speech, they absolutely do. And so our children who have, you know, this inefficient system for speech and have this history of CAS when they encounter some of those really complex motoric combinations of all these consonants in a row, um, things fall apart. Um, we also hear it with like regular ED endings where we get into a lot of kind of different combinations where we do things like unreleased plosives, like when we say hopped. And so we'll hear um, our children kind of simplify motorically. So even though they might have the understanding of the language concept and everything to actually execute it in their speech can be tricky, especially in connected speech. Um, there could also be some residual articulation errors if they haven't learned to produce all their sounds. And then we definitely will see um, if we push the system enough, we'll see some breakdown. And there's been some research on that too with individual young adults who have a history of CAS, where with multisyllabic words, novel words, if we really make these really complex um, combinations that then we'll see more errors than we would expect for then compared to an individual who did not have CAS. So those are some of those kind of issues. And sometimes I have older children who come to me and again, it's like, um, why, why isn't their speech sound like typical or why are we still having trouble understanding or in these contexts, why is it still hard to understand? And some, and often it is those kind of residual issues related to prosody and co-articulation. Gotcha. I imagine that it's similar to like a fluency disorder where the goal is not perfect speech. The goal is a positive sense of self-identity a sense of community and knowing what strategies to use when some days are tough. We had Jordan Christian Levon mm -hmm. on for an IG live and he explained that it's kind of like a roller coaster that, you know, just like all of us, some days are easier to speak than others. So that would make sense that there is some residual CES. Do you feel like it depends on the initial severity level too? Yes, yes. Okay. So I definitely think that's a factor when um, intervention started, how intensive it was, how appropriate it was. Mm -hmm. um, is, so those are all factors that go into, um, you know, end results and um, and how much kind of that of that residual, we know we can't there's no cure for CAS, right? Mm -hmm. We know how to treat the symptoms um, and we can often make those symptoms become um, less apparent. 
Uh, but the degree to which that happens, definitely severity is definitely one of the factors that goes into play with that. Gotcha. So like helping them advocate for themselves and let people know they have CES and feel confident about it, right? Absolutely. And like you said, it's like, you know, it is like fluency and I've attended a number of um, CEUs on fluency for that reason, because, and and I think kind of similar to fluency often, it, it does kind of shift. So when we're starting with these young children and we're using principles of motor learning, we kind of have one approach. And then as the children get older and we're seeing how they progress, then we do start to make a bit of a shift to where it is more about mindfulness, awareness, acceptance, confidence as a communicator, um, like you said, being able to self-advocate, things like that. And that's where I've really learned from from fluency therapy about starting to incorporate um, that kind of information into a child's um, therapy and giving them more control and say as they get older and what we're working on why if we're working on anything mm-hmm. you know like that starts yep. to become like their decision of are you happy and content with your ability to communicate then you know okay and then um and often around middle school that does happen <laughs> uh for her and then then but then i've had several who come back in high school or as they're graduating high school um, that come back for various reasons. And then they have decided that they there are some things that they would like to um, try to work on with their speech. And that's completely their initiation and their decision. And so then if I can help them, I do. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Like everyone needs a break sometimes in our our priorities at different stages in our life are completely different, especially in middle school. So that makes sense that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And yeah, if they're feeling good about, about themselves at that stage, then yeah. Or if coming to speech makes them feel worse about themselves, then no, we don't want to be doing that. So yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, this has been super informative. I am so grateful that, so if anybody is like not aware, we did like an all call for podcast submissions. Typically how I find our speakers is just kind of perusing on Instagram through research articles. So we got a really good amount of applications. Brianna was one of them and actually we're the only childhood apraxia of speech applicant. Can you believe that out of hundreds? Wow. (laughs) So yeah, out of hundreds. So it just goes to show you that there's so much more to be done in this area in our field. And we know from research and Dr. Eusini Siegel has mentioned it multiple times that it is rare, but it's not rare enough that an SLP will never see it. So it's really important that like you were mentioning for their long-term prognosis that either the right referral is done early on, uh, yes. or the therapist knows which approach to use because it's going to make a big impact on their long-term prognosis. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brianna. So if anybody wants to find and connect with you, how can they do that? Yes. So social media, Facebook and Instagram is at Apraxia Dallas. Uh, my website is apraxiadallas.com. And my email address is Brianna at apraxiadallas.com. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. And I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, then you're going to love Apraxia Connect. Registration for Apraxia Connect is open and super affordable, but only until Friday, June 23rd for general admission. Don't miss this opportunity to become more confident in diagnosing and treating clients with CAS. Click on the link in show notes to learn more.